So what are we supposed to get from the ministry of this man? Well, we have been referring to his ministry as an awakening ministry. That's because God describes people as being in the dark and asleep before we come to Jesus Christ. And they need a ministry of awakening to shake them up. There's actually a whole evangelical movement known today as awakening. And although their focus is not the same as John's focus, they are tapping into this biblical concept of people being spiritually asleep. Sometimes when you speak with someone about the gospel, they express their conviction that everyone's beliefs are personal and private and no one has the right to interfere or press their beliefs on anyone else. But that is an opinion that is coming from someone whom the Bible describes as in darkness. They're asleep. But in addition to that, do you realize that the Bible also uses this kind of terminology of Christians at certain points in their experience? Uh, this is why the Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonian believers as he does in 1 Thessalonians 5.6, and he says, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. Why would he say that to believers? Except for the fact that there is this kind of danger when Christians are in a type of slumber. Uh, they're in a dreamlike state, as it were, needing light and an awakening kind of ministry to snap them out of it. So this morning I want to turn our attention to the message of such a ministry as it's found in the example of John the Baptist. Let's read Matthew 3 now, beginning with verse 1. In those days, and this is the days when Jesus and his family were living in Nazareth, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There you have in one sentence a summary given by God of an awakening message. And that's what I want to begin with this morning. And as our first point, I want you to notice that this message contains the activity of awakening, which is to repent. What is repentance? The simplest definition of repentance is a change of mind. The Greek word has the, the term mind in it, and on the front of that word, there's a little preposition that means afterwards. So you think differently, or you think better than you did before. It's a change in a person's viewpoint. Now, this is not the kind of light and inconsequential mind change that we all go through, for example, when you enter Meyer to buy a shirt, and there's a whole table of them on sale. So you stand there debating between the colors until finally you pick one, and you take it to the register, and while you're standing in line, you kind of change your mind about the color. It's not that kind of shallow decision-making at all. When the Bible speaks of repentance, it's talking about the kind of person who's had one viewpoint for his entire life. But suddenly, he comes to the realization 
that he's just been totally wrong. And that nearly all of his decisions to this point have been made on the basis of that false viewpoint. So now his mind is in doubt and he can see that you know, this has probably led him down all the wrong paths. But finally, with this new realization, he regrets the viewpoint he once had and then he undergoes a radical alteration of his thinking down at the roots of his being and his attitudes, and he makes a complete about-face. The Bible refers to this as conversion. It's a total 180 degrees turnaround. But it is based, first of all, on that alteration or change in the mind. This is what God sent John to call the people to do. And it is a message that is desperately needed in contemporary Christianity. One of the more alarming features of modern Christianity, in which most of us have grown up with, is a deliberate downplaying and even denying the necessity of repentance and a change of life when coming to Christ. It was self-evident with the Reformers to preach the law of God before they called people to salvation. The Puritans were masters at applying the demands of God's law to people's lives until they were struck in their consciences with the way that they had been rebelling against the Lord God of heaven. In the 1730s, John Wesley preached a sermon entitled Scriptural Christianity. He preached it before the entire faculty, staff, and student body of Oxford University. Wesley uh, himself had been a student at Oxford, and he knew the way of life there very well. All of these people were baptized into the Church of England. Many of the students there were training uh, to be pastors or ministers in the Church of England. The teachers were ordained preachers in the Anglican church. But Wesley knows their lives. So he preaches a sermon to them called Scriptural Christianity. And in that sermon, he sorts through and examines their lifestyle. And he calls them to account before God for the emptiness of their confession. When he left the university after preaching that, he made a note in his diary He said that he knew very well he would never be asked to preach at Oxford again. But he said this, I have delivered my soul. I am free from the guilt of these men. 5,000 kilometers away, Jonathan Edwards was practicing a similar kind of ministry in America. Most preachers with any formal study uh, know the famous sermon that he preached, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I think I mentioned it last I spoke, but that was not the sermon that God used the most in the Great Awakening in America. Edwards himself said it was the sermon that he preached entitled, The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. I had you preach on that one today. The whole sermon is a lengthy argument on the fact that when God damns sinners to hell, He is entirely right to do so. Edwards argues his point from every possible standpoint. 
Uh, for example, he says to the people, well, look at how many of God's animals you've eaten. Every day you abuse God's gifts. You abuse what God owns. You, I mean, you've got no thought of living for him. So what do you expect from a just God? You can see that he's working on their conscience for their violation of God's laws. And then, of course, the evangelists of a century ago and even part of the 20th century would often hold two to three weeks of evangelistic campaigns in one place. And during the first week, they would preach nothing but the law of God. Until finally, people were prepared to understand how gracious God is to forgive people like ourselves. This is a far cry from the kind of Christianity I've seen for most of my life. An online Christian educational organization that offers degrees ranging from ministry certificates to doctorates produced an article this past August where they named what they considered to be the 20 most influential Christian leaders of the modern era. Very few of them are preachers. A number of them are just rich people who promote social causes with their money. Three of them are Roman Catholics, including the Pope. When it came to the preachers on the list, this is how they described them as having significant influence on political movements or strong roots in social justice and racial equality, foregoing formal theology and messages on the negative effects of sin and delivering upbeat messages on the prosperity gospel. This is what the most influential Christian leaders in the modern era are known for. This is what has advanced them to the influential position that they have. These are the very people who are supposed to be doing what John the Baptist did, which is to prepare people to receive Christ. But no, they have strong roots in social justice and racial equality. The most influential person on the list is the pastor of a Southern Baptist church, in Southern California, Saddleback Community Church. His name is Rick Warren. Today, there'll be 32,000 people attending his church. Just as John the Baptist's ministry was the talk of the country in his day, Warren's ministry has been the talk of America for decades. His book, The Purpose Driven Church, sold over a million copies. Half a million pastors have gone through his seminars to learn how to have a purpose-driven church. The sequel to his book, The Purpose-Driven Life, was on the New York Times bestseller list for over 90 weeks. 50 million copies in 85 languages have been sold since its release 20 years ago. The largest selling hardback nonfiction book in American publishing history. This man has the ears of people all over the world. And his book actually says a lot of good things. Don't get me wrong. But it also says this, that your choice of music will be the most significant fact in whether your ministry is a success or not. There's a whole section in the book on having just the right style of music. In his church, you can go to an island service where they have aloha music, if you like that kind of thing. There's a jazz service. You can listen to that. That's where Stuart would be. (laughs) 
They have a contemporary Christian service and so on. The only thing that distinguishes the service is really the kind of music that you like. And Warren says this, that one of the great advantages to this approach is that music can bypass intellectual barriers and take the message straight to the heart. Now, do you understand that kind of a philosophy? You just have to get past the intellectual objections of people. But this is the kind of ministry that downplays the preached word. They deliberately give little time to that, and yet we need to accept that your mind is your life. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So any message that bypasses my mind and is just caught up in the atmosphere and the sounds of what we call a worship service without really considering what I think, well, that's no life-changing message. And that's why those people's lives don't change. All of life change begins with a shift in my mind. That's why God comes to us and presents us with words, a lot of words, 66 books of words in the Bible. That's why he says to us, my law is perfect. It's my law that converts the soul. His law changes the soul. Then he says, the testimony of the Lord is sure. That's what makes simple people wise. He says, my statutes rejoice people's hearts. He says, my commandments are pure. They enlighten the eyes. Think of that passage from Psalm 19. The law of the Lord, the testimonies of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord. These are the things that enlighten the eyes, that turn the heart, that convert the soul. There's no awakening of a person in preparation for their salvation if you bypass their mind. But I wonder if our viewpoint is so affected by the Christian culture of today that we've almost accepted the viewpoint that it's the Old Testament that talks about obedience while the New Testament just talks about grace and faith. I mean, you know, obeying God is a harsh, strict, unwelcome Old Testament message. Well, the New Testament message, well, that's for us who really don't want to obey God. In fact, you know, we feel as if we can't obey God. So we just need to hear this message of grace about God. And therefore, a message like John's about repentance, well, we don't need that. I mean, let's just believe and accept God's grace without any change in what we do. But is it really true that in the Old Testament, they were primarily told to obey well, in the New Testament, we are simply told to believe. Well, look at what John confronts people with when he tells them to change their minds. This is the second part of his message. Look at verse 2. Change your mind, alter your thinking. Why? Because of this fact, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's drawn near in John's day. Here's the need for awakening. I've said this before, and we'll look at it in more depth in later messages, but the kingdom of heaven is not heaven. John wasn't preaching heaven is at hand. No, the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom over which heaven rules. So John was saying the rule of God has drawn near. The rule 
of the heavens on earth has drawn near to you. See, the fact is that all of us live as if there was no rule in heaven. That there was no God governing everything. We all live like that until the day comes when God awakens us and strips the scales off our eyes and makes us understand the reality of His sovereignty over everything, including our lives. We have been going through our entire life denying that God controls all or maybe even denying that there is a God at all. And yet God has been secretly behind the scenes directing every nuance of our life and breath. Well, occasionally God awakens people to that and suddenly they realize that there is a controller in heaven to which I must bow the knee and obey if I'm going to go out into eternity and be accepted by that God sitting on that throne. Well, the kingdom of heaven drew near in John's day in the person of Jesus Christ who is the King. Think of it in this way. Most of us live nearly the whole year with a vague recognition that in this country there is a federal government ruling all of us. Canberra, I think, is just kind of a distant place where politicians play games. But every June I get alerted to the fact that the federal government is drawn near. It is at hand. It's in the form of my impending tax return. Now, some self-employed people, for example, have disregarded their taxation obligations all year. Uh, for whatever reason, whether they, maybe they deal in cash only, they don't keep records or they just forget, they just didn't fill the forms in, calculate wages and GST and so on, they just ignore it all, they just hope it's going to go away. Well, in June, the reminders come, or maybe May, I've asked Lyle about that. And if the person ignores those, there's going to be a day of reckoning around the corner and it's going to eventually shut them down. Well, John was preaching God's kingdom. The one that you've just kind of been ignoring, it's drawn near, it's right at hand. He was confronting people of his day with the same thing that the people of our day need to be confronted with. And that is why this message begins every single gospel. God wants every reader of any of the four Gospels to be confronted with John's ministry. And John is pointing out that the defining issue for you in your thinking, in your mind, the defining issue is this, who is in control? God is confronting you with His kingdom, with His sovereignty, with His laws. Now this is not new. This really has been the issue ever since the Garden of Eden. Everyone is confronted with this. The real question here is this, will you believe and obey? Well, God's analysis of that is that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. We've gone our own way when the fact is there is God's way and God himself says that sometime in the future, the way of the godly will perish because God doesn't identify with that way at all. 
That's why in Isaiah 30, God gives the message 10 chapters before he predicted the coming of John the Baptist. And he said to us, as he said to those people, this is the way. Walk in it. So when John the Baptist came, that's what he was exhorting people to do. Repent. Turn around. God's kingdom is near. This is the way. Walk in it. Now, I do want to clarify something at this point for those who might be wondering. Uh, this repentance we're talking about, this coming to grips with the government of God, it's not a work for which God rewards us with salvation. Uh, please don't misunderstand. In other words, this is not something we do that earns God's salvation. This is a change in my mind, a change in my spirit of my disposition toward God and His ways and the path that He commands. And as a result of that change, I now run to Christ for Him to save me, and it's His merit alone that's the basis on which God saves a guilty person like myself. Someone who has thought the wrong thing and gone the wrong way for all of his life. No, this is not a work that we do. But it's absolutely essential in order for God to work in us. I've been clarified that there are three parts to repentance I want to point out. I think it's on your outline. And it begins with recognizing that I've been wrong. Recognizing that I've been wrong. Now that sounds simple, but when you come to grips with what it actually means and what a lost person has to recognize, it really does carry a staggering weight to stop and think about the entire direction of their life to this point. Think of the combination of decisions that they've made while they've been stumbling around in the dark. The myriad of dead ends and mazes and Poor decision-making over perhaps decades that has just compounded the trouble in their life. For example, what does this mean for someone who's been divorced four times and remarried every time? What does it mean for someone who's been cheating the government and not paying taxes for years? What does it mean for somebody caught in the web of multiple addictions and they've blown up their family relationships and they've isolated all of their friends? I mean, the law of God is preached to them and all of a sudden, they realize, they recognize what that whole combination of bad decisions in their life looks like. Well, there's a recognition that comes when the Spirit of God turns the, the searchlight of God's demands on your life. And when you really come to grips with the situation, you can't help but have some regrets. People who don't regret anything haven't had the lights turned on yet. Because when you realize that everything has been wrong in your life, it's all messed up. There is regret. But then something happens in the will of a person like that which basically renounces everything that messed up their previous life. You can think of it in terms of those three R's. Recognition, regret, renunciation of that way which really turns a person to the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn 
to Luke 1 for a moment. I'll have a look at it. And this is a passage that will confirm what we're looking at this morning and give us an understanding of how you would know if this work has taken place in a person. Luke 1 is where Gabriel tells John the Baptist's father of John's coming. In the midst of telling him about that, verses 16 to 17, he predicts the future usefulness of John's ministry. Luke 1.16 says that this boy who will be born to Elizabeth will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Look at that wording. Will turn many. He, he will also go before him, before the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn. There it is again. The hearts of the fathers to the children and implied to turn the disobedience of the wisdom to the, of the just. I mean, can it be put any better than that? What's going to be the outcome of this man's ministry? A turning in people's attitudes. Now again, that alteration doesn't save them, but it's necessary to saving. Someone has said that God doesn't save anyone because He repents, but He doesn't save anybody without repentance. This is a necessary turning in order to be, look at the end of verse 17, a people prepared for the Lord. That's why the preachers of old talked about plowing up the hard soil of people's lives by putting in the law of God as a plow and gouging broad furrows with it through the soil of people's spirits until finally when the people were sore and stricken and torn up by the law, now the gospel of grace comes in. We'll go back now to Matthew 3 where God gives to us the scriptural confirmation that this is right. We didn't read the verse, I'll do so now. Verse 3, for this is he the man preaching, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah saying, what it says in Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now why is that verse quoted following this message of repentance? Well, the answer is simply that God wants us to know that this man was a true prophet. He's not an imposter. And therefore, his message was true. How would we know? Because God is confirming to us scripturally that this man is the true forerunner to Christ. And again, this passage is quoted by every one of the four Gospels. I mean, you can't read any gospel without being confronted by John's ministry and then the scriptural confirmation that he is exactly the prophet whom God foretold to come with this kind of message. So in our remaining time, I want to look at the prophet of awakening from that scriptural confirmation so that we can see what was in John's ministry that actually verified him as the predicted prophet in Isaiah 40. In other words, when you open the Gospels, you know, you come across this man. Here he is. He's out there in the desert. He's wearing a camel hair coat in the days when it wasn't a status symbol. Although today it would be a faux camel hair coat, I'm sure. 
Uh, you know, he's eating locusts and wild honey. He's crying out to you to you better change your mind. He uses quite derogatory language sometimes. I mean, you brood of vipers. Change your mind. Government of God is drawn near. Okay. You know, that, with that kind of approach, any first-time Bible reader would want to know if this really is from God, right? I mean, it certainly doesn't sound like anything I've ever seen on religious programming. It doesn't look like any other kind of Christianity I've witnessed in megachurches or modern denominations. So is this really for me? I mean, repent because the kingdom of God is drawn out. Who is this guy anyway? Uh, let's go back and examine Isaiah 40 a little more closely. Isaiah 40 has 31 verses. The gospel writers only quote a few of those lines. So those lines are the key to confirming that John was really God's true prophet. The first line, as it's quoted by Matthew, is the voice of one crying. Well, that's not really unique. Uh, there were lots of people shouting for attention in John's day. Read the Old Testament. In fact, God indicts many false prophets who stood up in public places and cried out that they had the true message. The voice of one crying is not a unique feature for this prophet or even for a false prophet, but it's really the fact that this is a voice crying in a certain place. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now that's unique. His location. No prophet who wants an audience will do that. In fact, let's put this into modern terms. Uh, one of the given factors for having a successful ministry is doing a demographic study. Uh, locating your church or ministry in a certain environment that will be conducive to what you're trying to accomplish. Now, I'm not disregarding demographic studies. All church planners... Missionaries, they should do a survey trip in order to determine where the best opportunities lie for them to reach people. And for that reason, prophets typically go into the cities because that's where the people are. Jesus did that. But this man will be known as the authentic forerunner of the Messiah because he won't do that. Most prophets, even God-called preachers, go hunting for people. But in this case, God will direct this man to go out into the wilderness as a lone scout on lookout duty in some abandoned post pointing to God. And the people, would, they're going to have to go out and hunt for him. And they're going to have to do it in the most uncomfortable and hostile of environments, the Judean wilderness. Well, that will be a unique feature that will identify this man as the forerunner of Christ. It's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Look at verse 3 of Isaiah 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight where? In the desert. A highway for our God. Who among the rabbis would ever have thought that that would be fulfilled literally? But it was. The other thing about this prophecy that helps us identify John as God's true messenger is that the prophecy foretold the message of his ministry. Look at the message again in verse 3. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight a highway for our God. Now there are two things to note about 
this message. One is the implication that it's the Lord Himself who will come. John has to clear the way for who? Right, for the Lord. His message is to make a straight path for our God. Now, all of the prophets called people to the Lord and His ways. But in this case, there's the implication that you're clearing something out there in the wilderness for God Himself to come. And John, of course, was the only prophet of whom that was true because you remember from our last message that he was responsible to minister before the very face of the Messiah. He's not just pointing ahead to the Messiah, he's ministering in the very presence of the Messiah Himself who is God. The other thing about this message that stamps John's ministry is authentic is that he is telling the people to prepare themselves for God. God's rule had drawn near by the coming of Jesus Christ, whom God made Lord of all, and the people are to be ready. How are they to be prepared? By a radical change in their minds about their relationship to the God of heaven whose rule has come. The Lord taught a parable one time that illustrates so well, I think, what takes place in a person when God has done this kind of work in them through the Spirit. You remember the story about a rich man who had two sons. One of the boys was very ungrateful, and he came to his father to ask if he might receive his inheritance before his father died. What audacity. What kind of a son is this? Well, for whatever reason, the father gave in and he broke up his property and he gave the boy a full portion of what would have come to him anyway at his father's death. But you recall that the boy left home with his inheritance because he didn't want to keep working for his father anymore. He didn't want any accountability to that leadership, to that authority in his life. And then he traveled to a far country where no one knew him, and he just squandered what he had in a very short time. It's the perfect storm, you might say. He's got the blank slate of anonymity, so he lives the high life with nobody looking over his shoulder. But without any income, he's suddenly reduced to poverty. You can imagine his eviction from the penthouse the auctioning off of his cars and clothes and goods to pay outstanding debts and creditors chasing him, and finally he's got nothing left. He's got to hire himself out just to get by. The only job he can find is to feed the pigs, the Jewish boy serving pigs, as low as you can get. But he makes so little that in the end he's got to steal food from the pigs just to survive. His biography would be entitled From the Penthouse to the Pigsty. Well, one day he's sitting in the pigsty and he begins to reflect. That's where it all starts, doesn't it? It starts when people start to think again. The Bible puts it this way He came to himself. His mind started turning over and he began to reason with himself in this way. Well, how many of the servants in my father's house got plenty to eat? And I'm his son. I'm eating the pods they feed to the swine. I mean, what's up with that? So he resolves to change his course. I'll go back to my father. 
I'll go back with a total change of spirit so that instead of saying, give me what you owe me, this entitled attitude, his previous spirit, now he's got the attitude, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Just, just make me a servant and I'll be happy. And when he went back with that change of disposition, a total about face in his viewpoint, he found God prepared to run to him. And the Lord's portrayal of this is in terms of the father running and throwing himself on his son's neck and kissing him and saying, kill the fatted calf. My son who's lost has been found. Put a robe on him. Put a ring on his finger. My boy is home. That's the disposition of God towards people who really do experience a total alteration in their thinking about him as the father and authority in the household. But apart from that kind of change in the mind, there is no change of life. There is no repenting of the sins. An old pastor used to put it this way, God will save a sinner, but He won't save a rebel. God will save a sinner. He won't save someone whose mind has never changed. You must cease from your wicked, willful, wrong stubborn way of thinking because apart from that you might say hey I'm a Christian I know I'm a Christian but you're left with an empty profession your whole Christian experience has been characteristically looking out for number one it's it's your mind it's your thoughts it's your way your whole life has been a, a series of wrong decisions that were made on the basis of going astray in your own way but hey I'm a Christian William Gurnall, the Puritan writer, issued a warning to believers that I think says it very well, better than I can say it. Take heed that you don't pray with reservation. Be sure that you renounce what you want if you want God to forgive. It is desperate folly to desire God to forgive what you still intend to commit. It is a desperate folly to ask God to forgive what you still intend to commit when you walk out those doors this morning. You know, our Christianity is sometimes so weak and wishy-washy that the minds of many Christians recoil from a statement like that. And they immediately retreat into thoughts about the grace of God that will forgive the continual hard-hearted sinning. Now, it's one thing to constantly deal with the temptations of the flesh. Paul speaks about this in Romans 7. But listen to how he puts it. He says, with my mind, I serve the law of God. In other words, my mind is entirely given over to God's thoughts and God's law. However, I still deal with the flesh, and in my flesh, I sometimes feel like a slave to sin. And then he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Yes, but things are right in my thinking. I mean, the law of God is holy and just and good, and in my mind, I agree with the law of God. That's one thing. It's another thing entirely 
to be a professing Christian and yet go through your whole life in disagreement with God's ways or maybe theoretically in agreement, but when the practicality of life's decisions come along, it's always what's best for me and my way. Let me tell you, it is a blessed relief when God grants somebody true repentance and they come to the Lord without holding anything back. And they call on Him with their whole heart. And they're not double-minded. They're not debating. They're not half-minded about this way or that way. But the knowledge in their soul is that God has really turned their heart. And with everything that is within them, they want the Lord. They want His viewpoint. They, they want His way about things. It's like throwing off a load and being and that's exactly how the Scriptures describe it, and that's what many of us here have known. Finally, the victory is totally won. On the other hand, we all also know what it is to reach the place where we kind of feel half-persuaded, or we make a half-hearted effort at praying, committing ourselves to the Lord, but the entire time we know that down in our soul we haven't really been totally changed. And we keep strings attached to our sin that we fully keep intend on doing later on. So it's no wonder that many Christians just go through this terrible cycle of maybe a high in a church service and a response to an invitation, but a low within an hour. And then a high from another service, an invitation, another low in an hour. It's a terrible cycle. In their hearts and consciences, they know that something is wrong about their responses to God. Well, the thing that is wrong is that they have not really dramatically changed their view about whose word is going to be law in their life. Let me ask you something. Do you know what it is to just do something out of sheer obedience. Really. As a Christian person, do you know what it is to make a decision that is against all of your feelings because you know that your feelings are inflamed with a desire to do wrong and yet you make the right decision simply out of obedience? I mean, nobody's watching. Nobody knows. But between you and the Lord, you choose to obey Him. Do you know anything about that? Of course we do. In fact, we demand that of our own children in obedience to us. So why should we think it is unwelcome and unreasonable for God to say to us, Hey, you obey me because I'm God. You're man. If you disobey and sin, there's going to be consequences. I will punish you. No. My expectation is that the Lord, or that my son is going to be the Lord of your life because I'm the potter. You're the clay. It's my way or the far country. It's impoverishment and husks and friendlessness and insanity until you, you, until you come to yourself and you start thinking my thoughts once again. God is righteous to demand this of us. Edwards was right. The justice of God 
in the damnation of sinners, the justice of God in the chastisement of his wayward people. It is right for God to expect this of us. Now we need to understand that it's never too soon to repent. Do you ever feel that way sometimes? Maybe next week the message will be overwhelming enough to get me to do it. Maybe in a month or two. Let me think about it. And God will change my heart. Then I'll be willing to repent. People, it's never too soon to repent. What some people unfortunately find out is that too soon becomes too late. Because they've procrastinated the time away when in fact God has sent them an awakening message. Let's bow together for prayer. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to say that I thank God for the blood of Jesus Christ. That His blood cleanses us from all sin. His blood will do that on the condition of real confession. When somebody totally accepts what he says about himself and his sin, and then he just responds wholeheartedly to God. So I want to give an invitation this morning. I want to give it to two kinds of people. We may have somebody here, and you need the Lord Jesus Christ to become your Savior. Now, He's ready for you. His pardon is offered to you. He will freely give it to you if you just turn from your sin and turn to Him. But you cannot hold on to your sin and ask Jesus Christ at the same time to deliver you from its penalty. The broad way of sinning inevitably leads to the destruction of hell no matter what you say about your relationship to God. Jesus taught that. So you must turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and then you'll be saved. If that is you, and with all your heart, you want to be delivered from your sin, and you want to turn to the Lord, you want to live a life that pleases God, if that is the desire of your heart, this invitation is for you right now. I want you to speak to one of the elders after the service. second part of this invitation is for those who truly are born again. You are a Christian. I want to ask you this question. Are you a true Christian? And yet you have turned back to following your own way. And that way is condemned by the Word of God. The decisions that you're making are the decisions of a lost person. And maybe you're already reaping the discipline of God for making those decisions. You're going your own way. Are you someone like that? Well, God brought you here today to listen to this message. God is addressing your conscience. The Word of God is calling you to change your thinking, and He will empower you to do that if it really is the desire of your heart. Just pray where you're sitting. Just pray. Ask God to free you from your viewpoint that's enslaved your thinking. I mean, Lord, free me from this. Shed your light in my mind. Give me clarity. Bring me to myself. You pray that right now in your heart. Ask God to grant you repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And be assured that when you turn to the Lord like that and seek Him, He will be found. He says it. 
And then he's going to want you to start living your life according to his word. So that his thinking will become your thinking. Father, we thank you for your clear commands and instructions in the word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who applies that law into our hearts and consciences and strikes us in our heart with conviction. But then that same word that brings a message of grace. How blessed we are that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, teach us how to be your people who love you and serve you as our holy heavenly Father and who long to obey you in everything. May we be a people, your people, who are known for their obedience to your commands. In Jesus' name.